Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And as always, I am your host, Alex Painter. I hope this episode, the 21st in show history, finds you all safe and well. Not much along the lines of sports happening at this current time, so I really truly hope that this episode can curb you over at least just for a little bit, maybe stem the tide, just to even temporarily. But I am really excited to share this episode with you all, and I think it's a good one. I did a fair amount of research for it, and like the last episode, if you are a Notre Dame fan, you are going to be extremely familiar with this subject matter. And if you're not a Notre Dame fan, well, the odds are you're also going to still be very familiar with this subject matter. So before we jump into that, let's knock out some routine housekeeping as we traditionally do, shall we? Now, I hope everyone had an opportunity to listen to episode 20, which chronicled Joe Montana and the famous chicken soup game, the Cotton Bowl Classic, which was played on New Year's Day 1979. So Montana, stricken with sickness, manages to lead the Irish on a 23.4th quarter comeback. Yes, fueled in part by a bowl of chicken soup. So go give the episode a listen. It's a great, great story, and even if you are super familiar with the game, go relive that one. I actually had a couple messages to the show asking for the YouTube link to the game that I kind of mentioned in the episode. So if you're interested in watching the game, the entire thing is on YouTube. And if you can't find it, please message me at the show, and I'll be sure to send it to you. I actually sent it out to two people asking for it, as I mentioned. So... Uh, It seems like a lot of people got in and watched the video I was able to produce last week about my favorite, somewhat underrated, or kind of off-the-beaten-path Notre Dame spots around Greater South Bend. It's pretty shocking that over 1,400 folks watched it, according to Facebook anyways, or at least, I should say, three seconds of the video. If you watch three seconds of the video you count as someone who watched it. So I think the average viewer watched it for a whole 16 seconds, but actually a huge number stayed on for the whole video, which I do appreciate. So if you haven't had an opportunity to see that, I think it's it was kind of fun to do. I've, I've done some video, but mostly like live video. I'll just set the camera up in front of me and start talking into the microphone. This was the first one that had a little bit more production value to it. So please head over to the Facebook page if you want to watch it or if you want to watch it again. A special thank you to the show's fourth consensus All-American, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana, for sponsoring this episode. And as I've mentioned here for the last couple episodes, Brad is the Elmer Layden of the show, who was Notre Dame's fourth consensus All-American and the third behind George Gipp. So special thank you to Brad Glazer of Williamsburg and also a special thank you to Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, who is the show's sixth consensus All-American. So again, in real life, the program's sixth All-American was Tough No Center Bud Bowringer, who was named to the All-American squad in 1926. Elmer Layden, of course, in 1924, as he was part of the legendary Four Horsemen backfield conglomerate for Knut Rockney's Notre Dame squad that year. So thanks to the recent funds, the show advertising budget has been subsidized. And it seems, if as I mentioned in the last episode, if it seems like my voice is a little bit more 
clear. Uh, if it sounds like the audio has improved, that's just because it has. So some new audio equipment was purchased thanks to your donation. So thank you again and more on the Consensus All-American program here in a minute. So a friendly reminder, if you dig the show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, click that purple icon. So we can, you can also find the show on Spotify as well as Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. Podbean also has a mobile app, of course, as does Spotify. So please like, subscribe, do whatever it is that you have to do to make sure you're getting alerted to all the new episodes. So please interact with the show on Facebook at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onwardtovictory. If you'd like to send the show an email, please send it to onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to name yourself to the aforementioned Onward to Victory Consensus All-American list, you can do so very simply. A $10 donation will sponsor a couple episodes and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. You can donate at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation, or if you'd like to just donate a certain amount per month, visit patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. Any support is greatly, greatly appreciated. And I hope hope our Consensus All-Americans do realize that. And I will take the liberty to assign you a, a real-life Consensus All-American in Notre Dame football history, uh, as veterans of the show are aware. All right, as always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the song to use his song, Canute Rockney, as the theme. You can find the song on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, wherever it is that you download or listen to or stream, whatever it is, your music. So here we go, episode 21. So per show tradition, let's assign the episode a representative who wore number 21 for the Irish. And really, there's one of two ways we can go here. Uh, Because interestingly enough, I couldn't think of number 21 on the current Irish off the top of my head. And so I went back and checked last year's roster, and there was no number 21. So this could be the Bobby Taylor episode, who was a defensive back for the Irish from 1991 through 1994. He played in the NFL for a decade, earning first-team All-Pro honors in 2002. And he spent nearly his entire career in Philadelphia, mostly during those Donovan McNabb years that many of us probably remember. And he was a second-round pick out of Notre Dame, of course, in 1995, in the 95 NFL Draft. This could also be the Maurice Stovall episode, who, of course, played wide receiver from the Irish from 2002 to 2005, one of Brady Quinn, quarterback Brady Quinn's favorite targets during that time. And uh, Stovall was a third-round pick in 2006 in the NFL Draft by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, Stovall didn't quite have the professional career that Taylor did, but whoa, he had quite the college career. So when he graduated, his 130 career catches ranked 6th in school history, and actually still ranks 12th to this day. His 18 touchdowns still rank 10th. So I think that makes it just a bit easier. So let's go ahead and commence with the, drumroll, Maurice Stovall episode, shall we? Now, to do a quick rundown of each episode and who represented them, I think this is a tradition that, uh, at least from my memory, uh, we start in episode 10. So here we go. Episode 10 was quarterback Brady Quinn. 
Episode 11, represented by Safety Alohi Gilman. Episode 12, running back Ricky Waters. 13 was defensive back Tom Carter. 14 was running back Emil Red Sitko. The Fort Wayne Flash, or six-yard Sitko, depending on uh, what kind of mood you're in, I suppose. Let's see, episode 15 was safety Pat Terrell. Episode 16 was wide receiver Tory Hunter Jr. Then we had a string of three straight episodes that were represented by specialists. So episode 17 was punter Hunter Smith. Episode 18 was kicker John Carney. Episode 19 was kicker Justin Yoon. And then last episode, the chicken soup game episode was represented by defensive back Luther Bradley. So let's continue. One of the more, let's call it intriguing things about Notre Dame football is that standing nearly as tall as Irish Titans, Knute Rockney, George Gipp, Tim Brown, Manti Teo, Brady Quinn, Jalen Smith, insert any player here, is that a player that saw less than 30 seconds of game action 45 years ago tends to be just as, or in some circles perhaps more famous than any of the names I mentioned. So you probably know where this is going at this point. So the story of Rudy Rudiger leading up to this historical moment, these less than 30 seconds, is one that shows an indomitable spirit, persistence, resolve, and sheer doggedness that enabled one individual to do something that very few of us are ever able to do, which is to simply achieve our wildest, craziest of dreams. Rudiger, or let's be honest, in the circles that we all tend to run in, the surname really isn't necessary. If you just say Rudy, then folks know who you're talking about. But why do we know who this guy is? Well, that's easy. In 1993, a movie simply called Rudy hit the big screen, and for some anyways, it has been a heartstring-tugging, emotional, make-a-grown-person-cry smash hit ever since. For others, such as an ESPN writer penned in 2019, they actually find it irritating. Quote, mentioning Rudy in South Bend is the Notre Dame equivalent of bringing up the designated hitter, targeting rules or politics at Thanksgiving dinner. It creates an instant galvanization in a room. Some claim they were there for Rudy's November 8, 1975 sack of Georgia Tech quarterback Rudy Allen as time expired and he was carried off the field by a handful of teammates. Others, such as Joe Montana did on national radio in 2010, downplay Rudy's sack and the entire day is simply not as a big of a deal as everyone had made it to believe by Hollywood magic, end quote. So love it, hate it, or indifferent about the whole thing notwithstanding. Everybody probably remembers the first time they saw that movie. I know I sure do. But the question I have is, how did that story, one that some people and some influential folks like Joe Montana, dub it simply not as big of a deal as everyone made it to believe? What was the process in getting it to the movie theater, then subsequently into your VHS, then DVD, and now possibly Blu-ray or streaming libraries? Well, let's rap about it. I'll provide a bit of commentary at the end as well as far as what I really enjoy about the film and what still stands up almost 30 years after its release. 
And also, at least one thing that I really don't care for about it as well. So without further ado, I give you Tenacity and Spirit. How Rudy became a major motion picture. Right after this. Alright, for the purposes of this oral history, let's actually start with the events which transpired at the very end of the film. Let's hop into the trusty time machine on a direct path to November 8th, 1975. Joliet, Illinois native Rudy Rudiger, a 5'6", 184-pound, 27-year-old senior defensive end, enters the action of the final regular season game. Notre Dame is clobbering Georgia Tech 24-3 with 28 seconds left in the contest, having just scored essentially the game-clinching touchdown to put the game away for good. Rudiger runs down the field on the ensuing kickoff and lines up for the final two defensive plays of the game. The first is an incomplete pass down the sidelines by Georgia Tech quarterback, coincidentally also named Rudy, Rudy Allen. On the next play, Rudiger, lining up on the defensive left at his defensive end spot, then is able to shed a kickout block from a running back and bring Allen down for a quarterback sack to end the game. The senior, who worked his way to the game day squad from walk-on status, is picked up by several teammates and triumphantly hoisted into the air on their shoulders in celebration. Now, needless to say, I wasn't at this game, but that even being the case, this is undoubtedly a tremendously cool moment, even independent of the fact there was a famous movie that kind of climaxed at this point. But I played defensive end for many years, high school all the way through college, and even wore number 45 for that matter. But you know, let me tell you, there is no better feeling than bringing that quarterback to the ground. So, what a great story, right? I mean, it even garnered a mention in the Notre Dame Football Review that year, who summarized it fairly succinctly as, quote, Rudiger, a 27-year-old senior, a live-in security guard at the ACC, short for the Athletic and Convocation Center, which is now known as the Joyce Center, a veteran of two years in the Navy, and, unlikeliest of all, a 5'7", 184-pound defensive end entered the game with 28 seconds remaining. The veteran of three years on the prep team made the most of his opportunity too, sacking Tech quarterback Rudy Allen for a five-yard loss on the game's final play, end quote. Now, from my vantage point, I, I read these Notre Dame football reviews quite frequently, probably more frequently than any individual should, but the inclusion of the incident seems, while important, somewhat obligatory and kind of a throw-in anecdote for the football review. Not necessarily one that would inspire and spur a classic football film nearly two decades after the fact. So Rudy graduates from Notre Dame the following spring in 1976. He sold insurance for Amway, he sold cars, he cut some grass as well which takes him into the early 80s or so. None of it is really fulfilling to him, not compared to what he wanted to do. What he really wanted to do 
was pitch a movie about his journey to and through the Notre Dame football program to any movie studio executive who would listen. So he was living in South Bend at this time, and this is again the early 80s, and he would routinely host cookouts at his condo, where many past and present Notre Dame football players, coaches, and boosters would routinely find their way to. So while he was the life of the party and a gracious host, he's very affable. If any of you have met him, you have a good sense of this. But he was also trying to make as many connections as he could in an effort to make the movie. And once he saw Rocky, which came out in theaters the year he graduated from Notre Dame, he just knew his story could be a hit. He once said, quote, I'm going to make a movie about my story because it can inspire people, just like Sly Stallone did, end quote. But the cookouts and networking wasn't really getting him anywhere, at least not as quickly as he'd like. So uh, according to a 1993 Los Angeles Times article, in 1982, Hollywood, quote, slammed the door in his face. Rudy would later share that, quote, people would say, it's a great story, kid, but we can't do anything for you, end quote. According to that same Los Angeles Times article written by Chris Dufresne, for one five-year period, Rudiger, while shopping around his story, actually lost the rights to it. Quote, I fell in with a manipulative con man out there who told me he would get this movie done, but I had to sign away my rights to negotiate, end quote. So really, at this point, despite his best efforts, any movie looked like a long shot. As what was mentioned in the 1980s, Rudy had actually lost the rights to his own story. But Rudy regained some of that lost steam after he was apparently able to retain the rights to his story, and a different movie based in Indiana became a hit. Perhaps you're familiar with the 1986 classic film Hoosiers. Well, just in case you aren't, here's a brief synopsis from Fandango.com. Failed college coach Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman, gets a chance at redemption when he is hired to direct the basketball program at a high school in a tiny Indiana town. After a teacher, played by Barbara Hershey, persuades star player Jimmy Chitwood to quit and focus on his long-neglected studies, Dale struggles to develop a winning team in the face of community criticism for his temper and his unconventional choice of assistant coach, Shooter, played by Dennis Hopper, a notorious alcoholic." End quote. Now, of course, as undoubtedly many of you are aware, the film takes place in fictional, tiny Hickory, Indiana, but was loosely chronicling the pint-sized Milan High School's meteoric rise to win a state championship in 1954, well before Indiana instituted class play for the high school basketball tournament. It is a true David vs. Goliath story, where David wins. So the film was written by Angelo Pizzo and David Anspaugh. So suddenly, as we mentioned earlier, based on the success of Hoosiers, which more than quadrupled its production budget at the box office, Rudy suddenly felt like his story could once again grow some legs. So he simply had to meet the writer Pizzo. So he flew out to California to do so, having booked a meeting with Pizzo at a restaurant for lunch. 
Now, at the time, Rudy was working for Mike Leap of the Gurley Leap car dealership still in South Bend. And he asked for some time off to go to California to continue his attempt to pitch his movie. The conversation went uh, something like this. Sure, take all the time you need, Rudy, because you're fired anyway. <laughs> so according to an irishillustrated.com article written by Tim Priester, quote, when Rudiger arrived at the restaurant in California, pizza was a no-show. Rudiger tells the story of walking outside to clear his head, only to run into a mailman who could tell he was upset and he was willing to listen to his story. When Rudiger said Pizzo's name, the mailman's eyes lit up. He knew where Pizzo lived, end quote. So Rudy makes his way to Pizzo's house and proceeds to bang on the door until Pizzo finally answers. Talk about a different era. But Rudy said when Pizzo opened the door, he said, quote, It's Rudy, and you're late for lunch, Angelo, end quote. Anyways, Pizzo missed the meeting because he was up most of the night reworking a script that he was working on. And so he patiently met with the uber-persistent Rudy for a few hours. There were two interesting conditions to their initial meeting. Number one, there was to be no talk about making the actual movie. Because Pizzo, fresh off his success with Hoosiers, did not want to be pigeonholed as only able to write sports movies. So number two, he graduated from Indiana University, and he reputedly hated Notre Dame. So no talk of Notre Dame. Probably an interesting conversation. So according to Pizzo, he said, well, it's a good story, but you know, Rudy, I really don't want to do another Indiana sports story, and frankly, I hate Notre Dame, end quote. <laughs> so anyways, a year later, Pizzo called Rudy back. The executive who had greenlit Hoosiers had a small, in movie terms anyway, amount of money squirreled away to do another sports flick. So, in early 1991, Pizzo flew to South Bend and spent weeks walking the campus, talking with Rudy and his friends. Afterwards, Rudy said that, quote, it was six months of radio silence before he sent me that script, and I was a nervous wreck. I read it in one sitting, and I cried my eyes out. He understood me. He understood my spirit. I knew we had something that could really inspire people, and that's all I wanted, end quote. There was still a catch, though. According again to irishillustrated.com, the script was written. The money to make the movie was in hand, but they still didn't have Notre Dame's express permission. So when former Irish player and assistant coach Skip Holtz, who just happened to be a neighbor of Rudiger's, read the script, he reportedly passed it on to his father, who, of course, was none other than Irish head coach Lou Holtz. So the elder Holtz loved the story. And with a thumbs-up approval from the Holtz family, Rudiger once again felt emboldened. So, I quote, I showered, put on my suit, and walked over to University President Father William Beauchamp's office and pitched the idea once again, Rudiger said. By Monday morning, we had the movie approved, end quote. So, Pizzo turned to a familiar face, David Anspaugh, the director of Hoosiers, to direct Rudy which again was greenlit by the TriStar Pictures Company with a $12 million budget, double that of Hoosiers. 
So the journey to get this bad boy jump-started with Pizzo and Antspaw teaming up once again and the filming begins on in October of 1992 and is shot on location at the University of Notre Dame. Of note, it is the first movie to be filmed on campus in over five decades since Knut Rockne All-American debuted in 1940. Another movie we'll probably do an episode about in the future. So the cast is assembled, including Sean Astin as the titular character of Rudy, Ned Beatty played Rudy's father Daniel Rudiger, Charles Dutton played Rudy's ally Fortune, the head groundskeeper, the late Robert Prosky played Father Cavanaugh expertly. Young up-and-comer John Favreau was cast to play D-Bob, Rudy's tutor turned best friend. And future comedy titan Vince Vaughn makes his film debut as Irish player Jamie O'Hara. So the movie opens on October 15, 1993 and got its wide release a week later. According to BoxOfficeMojo.com, the film debuted at number 6, bringing in just over $5 million across approximately 1,500 theaters. It was a pretty packed field that week, with the following rounding out the top five. So be prepared for a waltz down memory lane here. So, Farewell My Concubine. Have not seen that one. Came in at number five. Maybe someone can fill me in on what that one is. But however, number four, making $5.3 million, was the Disney classic Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team. Number three, making $6.2 million, was The Nightmare Before Christmas, the Tim Burton classic. Uh, And number two was Demolition Man, making just a shade over $7 million. And number one, that week the Rudy came out, was The Beverly Hillbillies, with Jim Varney as the lead as Jed Clampett, making $7.1 million. So all told, the movie earned its $12 million budget back and nearly doubled it, earning $22 million in a 12-week run. I tried really hard to figure out how many Rudy VHS tapes and DVDs were sold because I feel like everyone seemed to have a copy of it, but I was sadly unsuccessful. Bob Golick, who was a member of Rudy's teams and who had just retired from professional football, said that, quote, As a player who was there, I was excited for him when it happened. And now that I know everything, I'm proud of him. That's incredible, end quote. Now, not all the reviews from former players were positive in what has become a famous interview with Joe Montana on the Dan Patrick Show. Montana, while the interview has been sensationalized a bit, did say that the players did not throw their uniforms on Coach Dan Devine's desk in a sign of solidarity for the former walk-on. He also said the crowd wasn't chanting, but, quote, when the players carried Rudy off the field, they were kind of playing around. I won't say it was a joke, but they were kind of playing around, end quote. Montana was also quick to say Rudy worked his butt off to get where he got, though. Many folks still write the movie off and do a bit of nitpicking because, well, it's Notre Dame and Honestly, even the writer of the film was one who had a natural dislike for the Irish. So yes, it is important to note that Rudy is a movie based on true events. But it is in fact just that, a movie. There are composite characters, and some of the situations have been perhaps fictionalized for dramatic purposes. But many of the core values, 
which Rudy represented at the time, best I can tell, were reflected in the movie honestly. So what is it about this movie that I think stands up? And what do I think that is so timeless about this movie? I think number one, and I think many of you would agree with this, that the music for the movie is fantastic. The Rudy theme song is, it's just beautiful. And if you ever want my favorite version of it, jump over to the O'Neill brothers who are actually a brother duo who both graduated from Notre Dame. And if you ever hear the song, Here Come the Irish, um, the one that they play, just as the football team's coming out of the tunnel, that was actually on an O'Neill Brothers album. It's sung by Kathy Richardson. But the uh, the O'Neill Brothers actually did, and I played it for my kids when they were small and they were, you know, uh, you know the age where they needed lullabies, so to speak. But they actually did an album called Notre Dame Lullabies. And to me, the best track on there is the Rudy theme. It's fantastic. And it is, it just gives you chills. And another number from the soundtrack is one called Take Us Out. Now, if you don't remember it from the movie, it's the one that they play as Rudy leads the team out of the tunnel for that last game. It just really sets the table so incredibly well for what was supposed to be a very emotionally evocative scene. And it's been used for numerous trailers, political campaigns, and all that. And it's instantly recognizable. So if the, if the song name, Take Us Out, doesn't resonate, just look it up on YouTube or Spotify. However you listen to your music, it'll become instantly, instantly familiar. So the other one was the cinematography. Being someone who played football for a really long time, uh, the football scenes were extremely believable, and that is not the case typically for a lot of football movies. And I think the filmmakers were very intentional about trying to make it as lifelike as they could. And Aston, Sean Aston, who plays Rudy, took looks like he took an absolute brutal punishing for some of those scenes. And the realism is is really good for a football movie, I think. And something that is of note, when they did the games, the games are shot by NFL films. So rather than like a bird's eye view or anything like that, they the, the, the camera angles are very grounded during the football, particularly the last football game. So it makes you kind of feel like you're in the middle of the huddle. And that is because, you know, they left it up to the professionals at NFL films to do that. So the loyalty to shooting on site is another one. There are so many cool spots at Notre Dame that they choose to do filming at, and you can just tell that they are they're in they're on campus, of course. But also of note, they do a lot of other filming uh, around South Bend. You know, even for some of the scenes that don't take place around South Bend, but you know they want to give that very unique, rugged, blue-collar Midwestern feel, and I think that they. I were able to do that in spades. And so in the video, I mentioned St. Casimir, which is a Catholic church in South Bend. That's the site for Rude, uh, excuse me, for Pete's funeral. And so that's actually in South Bend. You can visit it. Um, it's, it's a beautiful church. My goodness, it's, it's wonderful. But they also did some shooting in Joliet, Illinois, which is Rudy's hometown. So again, it kind of has that tough, rugged, I don't want to say bleak because uh, but some of like the, the winter scenes do kind of feel bleak like a Midwestern winter. But um, the loyalty to shooting on site is something that I think really stands out about the movie. Now, as far as scenes are concerned, the one where Rudy reads the plaque, the George Gipp and the George Gipp speech 
um, when he walks into the locker room with Fortune when he's working as a groundskeeper. I know a lot of people dispute whether or not the speech, uh, you know, the gift deathbed words actually happen, and that's perfectly fine. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but just how Rudy then, even in a small way, being a lifelong fan of Notre Dame, is walking through the locker room and is able to even just in a small portion. At this point, he has no idea that in a couple years he is going to be thrust into game action. But just being able to walk around and he's saying Paul Horning, Johnny Lujak, Johnny Latner, Four Horsemen, you know, he's naming off all of these legends. And so in a small way, before he actually achieves his dream, technically a couple years later, he's kind of living it out there. And I've always thought that that scene is really powerful. And then finally, the family, Rudy's family, showing up to the game. Oh, my gosh. I just – that one gets me every single time. I think it's awesome. You know, his dad, who um, tells him earlier in the film, he's like, I don't need to go to a game. I watch it perfectly fine from my family room, and I watch him on TV every Saturday. I don't need to go. And very dismissive of Rudy. Uh, But, however, you know, he gets to – he gets to Notre Dame Stadium and perhaps has a feeling like all of us had when we first went to a game or all of us will have when we go to a game that it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. So there is that. So I have a critique and it's not a it's not a unique or unusual one. It's a critique that is held by many, many fans of the movie and many people who aren't fans of the movie. And that's the treatment they gave head coach Dan Devine. So I think there's a lot of people who just saw that movie that would now assume, if they didn't know otherwise, that Dan Devine did not like Rudy and was totally opposed to Rudy's involvement in the game and all that. And they kind of, the the movie kind of needed a little bit of a villain, I suppose, uh, someone within the program that wasn't pulling for him. So I guess I wish they would have made it just like a random assistant coach, you know, not necessarily the head coach who in reality, Dan Devine was incredibly supportive of Rudy Rudiger and his efforts. And actually it was Coach Devine's Devine's idea to put him into the game. So uh, that's a big critique of mine. And yeah, we can get into the nitty gritty, like, you know, the character of Fortune didn't actually exist. There's a lot of characters that, as I mentioned earlier, are composite characters. But however, as I mentioned, I think the spirit of the movie, the spirit of Notre Dame is effectively conveyed in the movie. You know, as as, uh, Joe Theismann once said, if you could take the spirit of Notre Dame and bottle it up, it would be big enough to light the universe. And whether you hate Notre Dame, love Notre Dame, are indifferent, love the movie Rudy, hate the movie Rudy, it doesn't matter. I think one thing that is very loud and very clear is the spirit of Notre Dame. And we will be right back. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that. That was a bit of backstory on how many a Notre Dame football fan's favorite movie became just that, a movie uh, about Rudy Rudiger and his path to and through the to Notre Dame and through the Notre Dame football program. So I really do hope you enjoyed that. Got some really exciting episodes coming down the pike. So I know we're in an election year, and I will not go into the politics of it. However... I will do an episode here very soon about one of my favorite presidents, that's John F. Kennedy, and his relationship with the University of Notre Dame. So I'll be doing one of those, and I actually also just got a new book in the mail, 
Um, some of you may be familiar with it, but it's written by Chet Grant, who is a Notre Dame alum, uh, but he actually was George Gipp's backup. And then in 1921, the year after George Gipp well, was through with Notre Dame, playing at Notre Dame, but also passed away. He was the starting quarterback. So, But he wrote a book called Before Rockney at Notre Dame, which is kind of the authority on Notre Dame football before Rockney showed up as a uh, student, uh, you know, as, which was, I believe, 1910. So anywho, some of those really early Notre Dame football teams, which is really interesting. So probably be doing something around that, and I'm really excited to do that. So again, we have the before Rockney at Notre Dame, of course, John F. Kennedy, uh, with Notre Dame. That's going to be a new episode. I'm also looking forward to doing, hopefully, I'd made a book recommendation not too terribly long ago on one of the videos on Facebook about, excuse me, Todd Tucker's Notre Dame versus the Klan. Just remarkably interesting stuff there as well. So I really do hope you enjoyed that, and please be on the lookout for future episodes. I hope everyone is staying safe, and I hope everyone is staying well. You know, as it stands right now, we're not sure if we're going to have a college football season, and that would be an unparalleled thing to happen in college football history. Now, it'll all be for the best, I know, in order to keep everybody safe and healthy. But uh, as that kind of saga unfolds, I'll be reporting about it uh, on this show I've been kind of taking some notes over some of the things that Coach Kelly has been saying. He's actually kind of been very vocal about possible scenarios, which uh, has been refreshing. I think uh, I think Brian Kelly is certainly a very intelligent person, and he's kind of a voice of reason, in my opinion. And uh, even though he kind of has uh, <laughs> he kind of has a bit of a temper, get him off of the gridiron, and he's very even keeled. And um, I always, I've always had a lot of respect for, for Brian Kelly. I know a lot of people feel very different about him or maybe similar, uh, but regardless, he's got some really good thoughts about what the upcoming season may look like. So we'll probably do an episode on that as we continue to learn more about what the season is going to look like. So a lot of cool stuff coming down the pike, hopefully. So don't forget, if you haven't already, go over to the Facebook page. Follow the Facebook page because all of the show updates are funneled through that platform. And if you're listening to this on your iPhone, please, please go to the podcast, uh, the per- click the purple po- uh, podcast icon, click subscribe. That way you get all the new episodes. If you're doing this on Podbean app, on the Podbean app, pardon me, or the Podbean website, please subscribe to the web, to the uh, to the show, pardon me, and same goes for Spotify as well. That way you're just updated and make, make sure that you're getting all the latest and the greatest. So don't hesitate to go back and listen to any one of the previous 20 episodes. And I think that'll about do us. So I really, again, hope everyone is staying safe and well. I hope you enjoyed the something of an oral history of the making of the movie Rudy and kind of, again, how it went from kind of a throw-in sentence or paragraph, I should say, in the Notre Dame football review to a smash hit major motion picture. Oh, and before I forget, one last bit. If you're interested in a different project that I have pursued, I just recently released uh, a new book. Um, It's a baseball book, but uh, I suspect there might be some baseball fans here, but it's called Black Ball in the Hoosier Heartland, Unearthing the Negro League's History of Richmond, Indiana. So that was a completely separate project that I worked on, and if you're interested, again, I think it's it's a good narrative of baseball history, and uh, if you're an Indiana person, you might have particular interest in it. 
So you can buy it on Amazon, you can buy it on Barnes & Noble, uh, or Lulu Publishing Company. So if you're interested, and if you can't find it, feel free to send the show a message. I'll make sure I point you in the right direction. But again, if you want to support something completely different of mine, uh, I'd appreciate it. And speaking of appreciation, thank you again to our Consensus All-Americans, Brad Glazer out of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Michael Finan from Rutherford, New Jersey. Again, this show would not happen without that kind of support. So I do do sincerely thank you both and everyone else who has donated to the show in the past, all the other Consensus All-Americans. However, I know that times are different right now, and if you don't have the disposable income to, say, support your local friendly podcast in that way, that is perfectly fine. Hey, like, share, comment, all of that is greatly appreciated. This is a show that grows actually mostly through word of mouth and re friends recommending it to other friends. So if you have someone who you know who might be interested in the subject matter that this show kind of tackles, then please, please feel free to share it on Facebook or share it personally with anyone that you might know. And that all is greatly, greatly appreciated. So I reckon it's time for me to sign off. So this has been episode 21, the Maurice Stovall episode of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, as always, I am your host, Alex Painter. And don't forget, go Irish.